Has anyone got uh, kids in the kids program? Just kind of, uh, good. Um, are any of them under 15? Ah, oh, right, that could be a problem. Because uh, our kids program these three days is rated MA. Um, it contains um, frequent strong violence, sex scenes and adult themes. Um, so I guess, anyway, I, we should rate it MA, really. I remember saying to Scott Sanders about uh, a few weeks ago, I said, mate, we're doing judges. Are you sure you want to do the kids' program? I mean, the Ehud thing and the sword and acting that out, it could get a little messy. And uh, you read the book of Judges lately and seen what it contains? Like, if you made a movie out of Judges, it'd be like a cross between kind of Gladiator and Silence of the Lambs. Uh, sex scenes, adult themes, dismemberment, uh, heads being nailed to uh, the floor with tent pegs, etc., etc. It seems a long, long way from us, doesn't it? It's like it's 3,000 years away, but in terms of geography and so on. So what do you learn from it? Well, you know, they're God's people. They did X, therefore we should. So today's uh, passage, um, Christians should always carry concealed weapons. Uh, maybe not. Samson, more time in the gym. Uh, the JL story, never go camping with a woman. Uh, if you haven't read that lately, you'll... You should, you. No, why? Why can we learn things from uh, the book of Judges? Answer? Because there's three things that never change. Three things about uh, people and about God. First one is people, uh, people and our weakness and our sin. People and our weakness and sin. The second thing that never changes is God and his justice and compassion. God and his justice and compassion. And the third one is, therefore, people's need of being saved from the consequences of sin. Now, those things never change. Uh, and at the end of each of these, uh, these judges that will look at, we'll ask, what does it teach us about God and how God saves people and why? But what I want to do with you today is just look, the first half of this first talk is, is hard work because I want to show you the introduction to the book of Judges and why it's set up the way that it is. Uh, if you've got, it'd be really good if you've got the, um, uh, your Bible open there at the book of Judges. I'm working from the NIV text, uh, but uh, it won't matter too much which translation you have. The way the Judges is structured is the first two chapters is an introduction, and then really chapters 3 through to 16 shows you the story of a dozen Judges. Some of them are quite long, like uh, Samson and Gideon, and others are very short. There's just some that only get a verse or two. But there's a dozen judges. And pretty much the way that 3 to 16 is set up, it shows you the, the degeneration of the people of Israel. Things just get worse and worse as the judges go on. And then 17 to 21 is kind of a, an epilogue that actually just shows you just how bad things have got. Uh, I read it um, yesterday morning, the, the last section about about the concubine and her being cut in pieces and uh, just violence and abuse of women and civil war and just plain incredible stupidity. And let's see what we can learn from Judges. Uh, in terms of putting it in context, you go to Judges 1.1, it's, it's part of a long story. You go back, I'm assuming that you've read it and you know the story of, of Abraham about 2000 BC and God makes those promises to him that God would make him into a great nation, that God would bless his name, that God would bless the whole world through him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, then 400 years uh, in slavery in Egypt. And then at the beginning of Exodus, uh, around 1300 BC, God uses Moses to bring the people out of Egypt uh, right to the edge of the promised land. Moses dies and then see chapter 1 verse 1 of Judges. 
uh, after the death of jo- oh, sorry, um, then, then Moses dies, and then Joshua is the one during the book of Joshua uh, who comes in and conquers the tribes of the land. But it's important to note he doesn't he, he conquers the land, but he doesn't kick all the uh, other nations out. That's not finished by the beginning of the book of Judges. All right. So Judges chapter one verse one. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? To actually, if you like, complete the job. I don't know if you've noticed that of these, of these books that begin the Bible, how there's a pattern there that each book begins with the death of the previous great leader. So um, the book of Exodus begins with the death of who? Got it? The book of Exodus, second book, begins with the death of... Joseph, well done, Mikey, you're awake. Um, the book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. And then the book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. And I think the writers are making the point that um, the great leaders and so on, it's not, they're not indispensable. God is the one who's in charge. God is the one who will care for his people and get the job done. But it begins, each of them begins with somewhat of a, a crisis. Judges chapter 1, you begin with Judah going to actually take the rest of their land and the victories that they won. And they do. They, they push the Canaanites and all the otherites out of their land. But the other tribes don't do the job properly. Have a look down to chapter 1, verse 27, and there's a whole long list of who it is that didn't do the job properly. But Manasseh, right, the tribe of Manasseh, verse 27, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan, or verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. Interesting thing, why did they force them into why did they push them into forced labour but not drive them out? Not cheap labour is that that's how you're going to get wealthy, isn't it? People working for you who are unpaid and so on. Or verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living near Giza. The next four or five verses list in detail um, the tribes that didn't do the job. And so God is angry about this. Chapter 2, verse 1, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? You know, I think... Well, what's the problem, really? Why couldn't you just kind of live near these people and everyone just take a deep breath and relax? And you know, I'll tell you why. It's because we think that all religions are moral. We think that religions will just be moral and teach people to do the right thing and why can't we all just get on? And that's not what Canaanite religion was all about. Let me read you a little um, a page here from Ralph Dale Davis, his... Uh, his commentary on the book of Judges in the Focus series, sorry, Dale Ralph Davis, is brilliant. Anything that he writes is, uh, is worth buying and reading. Listen to what he says about um, the Canaanite religion. And he's talking about Genesis 1, but how it applies to Judges. Many readers of Genesis 1 are unaware that they hold in their hands a piece of revolutionary propaganda. It propounds the novel idea that sex is a human activity. This God of Israel is strange. Yahweh has no wife or consort. Biblical religion holds that you will find Yahweh acting in history. Creation, flood, call, the preservation of the patriarchs, deliverance from Egypt, cutting off the Jordan, etc. Acting in history, not pulsating in nature. Though nature too is under his sway. 
Yahweh sits on a throne high and lifted up from which he rules, creates, preserves and redeems. He does not lounge in some celestial bedroom copulating with his feminine divine counterpart. It has become so difficult for us to grasp how different, how holy the God of the Bible is. But the Canaanites were not so. Neither was Baal their God. Baal was the God of storm and fertility. And for the Canaanites, of course, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops and livestock and family. Baal, nature god that he was, naturally had his female consort, Ashtaroth, or Ashtar. In Canaanite theology and agriculture, the fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort. The revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and his partner. But the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead, their watchword was... Serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. Hence the Canaanite practiced sacred prostitution as a part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to the Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman, Ashtaroth's. The idea, that the, copula- the idea was that the copulating of the worshipper and the holy whore would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Mrs. Baal, to do their thing, and thus the rain, the grain, the wine, the oil would flow again. Through sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist, encourage, and bring about the great orgasm of Baal in the sky. Thus Baal would make, quote, all things new. However, nothing would happen unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. Here, incidentally, is the great divide between paganism and biblical faith. In paganism, the gods must be coerced rather than trusted. If we turn on it, now what's all this look like? Think about why is God saying, push the people out of the land? If we turn on our imagination lights, we can readily understand how Israelites would have been lured towards Baal worship by the Canaanites that they had allowed to remain in the land. One can almost hear a helpful Canaanite trying to talk a little religion and sense to his Israelite neighbour. And then he goes on to describe basically how one Canaanite man inviting his Israelite neighbour to the Simply Baalism course wouldn't have been that difficult, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And you think, well, um, you can see it, can't you? That, That religion, those practices, that kind of belief beside beside you day by day and of course it's going to be seductive and drag you towards especially given it was syncretistic they weren't saying don't serve Yahweh they were saying let's just blend it all in together and what harm does it do well you see what's it going to do it's going to destroy marriages it's going to destroy trust it's going to destroy families it's going to be seductive and and before you know it you're going to be sacrificing children to your gods the way that the Canaanites did and that's why God says don't do it don't do it. I couldn't help but think, you know, though, their, their prosperity gods are really crass and, and so on, you know, but prosperity is a great blind spot for the people of God as well today, isn't it? We think, how stupid, you want your, you know, car, you know, your cows to have calves and you do this kind of thing, you think your crops will grow and prosperity is the a great blind spot. Sometimes it's crass today too, like, you know, the prosperity theology. If you just do the right thing and have enough faith, God will make you healthy and wealthy and beautiful. Just plain old ordinary materialism is our great blind spot. And I'll tell you how I know it's our great blind spot. Pastors won't teach about it and I get nervous when I speak about it in churches. When I get nervous in speaking about a topic, that's an absolute red flag that I actually should do it, okay? But I, it's... 
very easy to see how, you know, crass and unwise they were in the Old Testament, and yet, like I said, people don't change. What's the punishment for this? Well, look at 2 verse 3. Now, therefore, I tell you, this is still the angel of the Lord saying, Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. In other words, okay, you wanted them, you've got them. Um, Live with this snare and this challenge. Now, then what you get is a flashback that actually explains how how did this mess all all happen? How did we get with the mess? And that is the the failure of the second generation. Why? 2 verse 6. After Joshua had, had dismissed the Israelites, they went on to take possession of the land, each of them to, to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Remember, Joshua had been with Moses. He was one of the only two to enter the land who'd seen everything that happened. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. So while Joshua's around and the people who were with Joshua, everything's okay. But what's the problem that happens? Look at verse 10. After chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. See, the generation who didn't know the Lord. Now, you can't hold Joshua's generation responsible for the fact that the next generation didn't know the Lord. Whether or not someone knows the Lord, whether or not someone knows God, is between them and God. God doesn't have grandchildren. Each person must, you know, it's between them and God. You can't hold yourself responsible for what your kids or the next generation do with regard to God. But did you notice the second phrase? That's the real problem. They didn't know the Lord, what? Nor what he had done for Israel. It's something different to knowing the Lord, isn't it? They didn't know the Lord and they didn't know what the Lord had done. For, they didn't know the facts. They didn't know the, the, the basics. They hadn't told them the, the story of what had happened. They hadn't done what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. Do you remember? These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you drive along the road and when you... Uh, sorry, when you walk along the road, there's a Freudian slip about kids in there, drive along the road, um, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses and, and they hadn't done that. They hadn't taught the next generation. Now that, that falls on us. I, I, I think there's many Christian families where parents are not deliberate about teaching their kids. And in the day of outsourcing, we just expect, you know, Sunday school or youth group or whatever will do it. Uh, no. And I want to say, dads, you can't outsource it. It's your job. You're the head of the house. It's your, I mean, mum will be an intimate part of it. But dads, it's your job. You don't control whether they know the Lord personally, but you know they should know the stories. They should know the truth. And to fit it into family life. Uh, here's one very simple one. After a meal, whether it's breakfast or dinner or whatever it is, one meal a day, grab the Bible. They all sit there. You do it between main course and dessert, so you've still got some leverage. Yeah? Yeah, uh-huh. And then you read them the Bible. And they'll carry on and they'll give you teddy bear eyes and they'll, you know, someone will break wind and they'll all howl with laughter and all that kind of thing. But at the very least, they will remember, Dad always read the Bible with us. Dad always read the Bible with us, okay? And I've got two, we've got two that are not walking with the Lord yet. Not walking, and they're, they're full growing. But they know the truth of the gospel. It's hardwired into them, whether they like it or not. And we pray for them. And do they know the Lord? It's between them and the Lord now. 
It kills me, but it's between them and the Lord now. Okay. So Joshua's generation, didn't they didn't know the Lord. And then what you're introduced to, what's the consequence of that? They didn't know the Lord. Then you get an introduction to kind of this cycle uh, in Judges. And it's a cycle that repeats itself. It's circular, but it's actually more of a downward spiral. See, 2.11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. And, and now you know why. It's, it's so powerful, seductive and evil what they were doing. Verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they, had, um, they were no longer able to resist. God punished them, handed them over to other nations. Now you think, well, wait a minute. Is that, is that the, the punishment of God or is it the kindness of God? It, it's both. Right? God loves them enough to still pull them up. Right, to get their attention. It's like the severe mercy of God. And they, at first anyway, he opens their ears and they cry out to God. Eventually the downward spiral is so strong, we'll see uh, on Wednesday, they stop crying out for God. They just they kind of roll over and give up. God doesn't give up on them, they just give up. So what happens? Verse 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. The judges are... Um, uh, like leaders or, or saviour figures. They're not from any system. They're not from any family line. God just raises them up or the spirit of the Lord comes upon them. God chooses these guys. Um, 2 verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and, ser- and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them and they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So the Lord was with them and then, verse 19, when the judge died... The people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Right, there's the hard part. Uh, if you add up all of the judges and how many years they reign for uh, or they, they rule for and then how long peace happens, uh, it's 390 years. And that's actually too long to fit into the chronology of the Bible exactly. So what seems most likely is that Judges gives us these dozen judges sequentially, but they're geographically isolated. They operate in a certain geography and they fight a particular enemy, and it's quite likely that the judges overlapped in time because you've got a whole lot of tribes who are kind of related to each other but not one common government. And then you get the judges. Um, so we've had, you know, the, the usual problem. You look, you see in the outline there, if you're following... Um, Chapter 3, verse 12, the unusual answer. So the first judge is Othniel. Uh, chapter 8, verses 3 to 11, we know very little about him, just he was a judge, God used him. And then we get to Ehud. Um, now when you read, I think we, we, we lose it a bit. We, um, we, we miss some things. When you read this story, the stuff that's actually meant to be funny. Maybe not slap your knees, roll on the floor, ha-ha funny, but kind of smirk a little bit. Um, yeah, that, that's funny kind of thing. Let's read it and see. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Notice it's the Lord who does it. Um, Moab's just over the Jordan River. If you look at the map, Moab's to the uh, right. It's to... To the right, it's the eastern side, and Moab, they cross the Jordan River. Um, Eglon as a name, means either little calf or fat cow. 
uh, and we'll find out more about him in a little while. Uh, so what do they do? Um, verse 13, getting the, Ammon the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. So across the river, they take Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, Ehud, the left-handed man, good, let's get on with it. And, and we miss, there's a subtlety there, and that is, in the ancient world, um, if you were left-handed, you were regarded as actually kind of semi-retarded, really. Um, uh, the, the word for left-handed literally means restricted in the right hand, okay? So he was a bit of a retard, he couldn't use his right hand, he was a lefty. Um, now, that's totally different today, of course. Um, Ned Flanders runs a shop called the Leftorium for left-handed people, and there's lots of great left-handed sports people like... Uh, uh, anyone? Ricky Ponting, there you go. That's probably not a great name to choose right at the moment, but uh, <laughs> well done. Yeah. Now, it gets even better. It gets even better. Where is the left-handed man from? The tribe of what? Benjamin. Now, all you guys who've been through Bible college think, ah, yes, of course. Let me take you back six or 700 years to where uh, Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel, is in childbirth with her second son, and she's dying. Okay. And here is where the tribe of Benjamin comes from. They moved from there to Bethel, um, where there was still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, for you have another son. And as it's been explained to me, it means a breech birth. The child's coming out backwards. That's how you tell it was a boy. And that's what in the end kills her. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named him Ben-Oni. But his father named him Ben-Hamin. What does it mean? Well, Ben-Honi means son of my trouble. Okay? Benjamin means son of my right hand. So what you've got, just the, you know, the, the native speakers would just get a... He's the left-handed guy from the son of my right-hand tribe. What? Huh? And not only that, he's armed with a toy. Look, verse 16. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long. Literally in the original, it's a cubit long, okay? Which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So he's got a sword that's about that long, which is pretty much just a big knife. A proper sword should be twice that big. He's got a toy sword. He's left-handed. And here's the significance. He straps it to his left-hand side. Now, any normal person carries their weapon on... Their, sorry, he straps it to his right-hand side. Any normal person carries a weapon on their left-hand side because you draw it with your right hand. What happens? About a month ago, I went through Cairns Airport, um, through the metal detectors there, kind of sleepy North Queensland, and I, I had my, my main bags all full of camping stuff. I was going on an ecotourism trip. And I had... Um, <laughs> and camping and ammunition and stuff. I had two or three... Uh, two... Um, uh, Solid steel camping things, uh, Dixie, I think they're called. It's got a lid, it locks down, and it's, it's, it's about so big and solid steel. And I had them in my backpack, and I put it through the metal detector. It's like solid... I, it's just, and I'm waiting to have to get it out and explain it, and the girl's just sitting there watching... Well, not really watching the screen, staring into space, and it goes through these two big black steel things about to get on the aeroplane, and I looked at her and said, 
And she said, hmm, it's fine, just wave me through. Well, Eglon had her working for him this day, right? <laughs> okay. Why? Because they've patted him down and they've only patted down the left-hand side, which is where any normal person... And so he's carrying his little toy sword on his right thigh. Yeah? 17. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, why is he a very fat man? Well, he's been living off the fat of the land for 18 years. That's why. After Ehud had presented the tribute... Um, he, sent on their, sorry, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. What he actually says is, I have a thing of hiding for you. I've got a hidden thing for you. Uh -huh. And you think, you know the story, man, is it going to get hidden? It's not, this is not pretty, okay? And so the king thinks something, you know, treasure or whatever it is. Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message for you from God. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which uh, came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat... Um, closed in over it. And what's the most important thing if you're a hitman? Stay cool. Every move you've ever seen, the hitman gets away, that's because you walk away cool. All right? Verse 23, then Ehud went out to the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Walks away calm. Verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. Now you know some things can't be rushed, but you can only read the paper for so long, and they worked that out eventually. Um, verse 25, they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fall onto the floor dead. While they waited, Eglon got, um, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And what does he do? Verses 27 to 30, he calls the Israelites together. Now is the time to act with their king dead, and they do that. And they kill many of the Moabites as they try to get back across the river to go home. And it's a happy ending in verse 30. Well, temporarily anyway. Then verse 31. After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Amath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Not necessarily 600 all at once, um, but uh, 600 over time. I don't know if you've ever seen an ox goad. I don't know that I have. I've done a little research on them. An ox goad is not particularly high tech. Okay? Uh, it's a pole about 8 foot or 2.5 metres long. Um, it, it starts at a, a thicker part at the base, about 6 inches or 15 centimetres, just enough to get your hands around, and thins down a little bit. On one end it has a, a pointy spike to goad the ox, yeah? and then on the other end it's got a little spade thing that you actually clean the plough with. So it's kind of, the, you get the ox working and then you clean the plough with it. Now, I guess you could kill Philistines with it, uh, it'd do the job, it'd be messy, it'd be, but he does the job. Tell you what I've noticed, what um, Dale Ralph Davis showed me. A while ago, they had a, a thing on television called Deci a, a, doco, a series of docos called Decisive Weapons. They had all sorts of cool stuff like, uh, you know, the longbow and the samurai sword and the spitfire and all that sort of thing. But you will not find any decisive weapons in the book of Judges. When you actually stop and you think, wait a minute, it... It's, when I read it, it's bizarre. Let me show you the, the different weapons used by the judges. Ehud has his toy sword. Shamgar uses an ox goad. Anyone remember what Jael uses? 
tent peg, okay? Does the job, but it's a bit funny. Gideon, clay pots, and a burning torch. Um, in chapter 9, an unknown woman drops a millstone on Abimelech. Uh, if ever anything needed to be done, it was that, but it's a funny weapon. And then in chapter 15, Samson, the jawbone of a donkey. And it's as if, in Judges, it's kind of deliberately set up the idea of, well, you're off to fight the enemies of God, and what are you armed with? Uh-huh, an egg lifter, good. It's that kind of <laughs> pathetic, weak sort of... Ehud, the left-handed man with his toy sword, and Shamgar with his ox goad. Now, do you remember the beginning we said, what is it that Judges shows us about you know, the human predicament and our need to be saved, and what does it show about how God saves people and why? How God saves people and why? Because the whole of Judges is set up to show that, that these guys saved, God, saved God's people in God's strength, not their own. In God's strength and not their own. And that is the way God still saves people. Do you want to turn with me, just, um, just turn to the New Testament and then we're done, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it really is important to get this in our head. God saves people in ways that shows it's his power, not ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is foolishness to people, isn't it? And, and then he goes on and elaborates. Well, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Notice it's not just the foolishness of preaching, it's the foolishness of what is preached. Right? It's the foolishness of the message. And it is foolishness to people. Um, I read a quote uh, from a guy. Now, I'm not sure how to pronounce this man's name. It's a Jewish name. I think it's Chaim. Chaim huh? Witz. Um, does anyone know... Here's Chaim. Does anyone know who Chaim Witz is? He's 61 years old. And he's more um, frequently known as Gene Simmons, who used to dress as that dude with a long tongue in Kiss. Now, I know you young guys, you kind of rolled your eyes and think, ah, oh, you know, right? They were pretty cutting edge in the 70s, right? They, these guys were really kind of right on the edge. Um, but like all, uh, you know, baby boomers, he's now... If it looks a bit freaky having him dressed like that, just imagine he's 61 and I think he's still doing it. Uh, that's freaky. But listen to what he says about Christianity. And particularly he's talking about the far right in the USA, the Christian right and their reaction to KISS. He says, ah yes, Christianity. There was a time when the Christian right thought KISS was not just a band, but knights in Satan's service, got it, K-I-S-S, and other terrors. It's bizarre notion for me that the far right has a problem with a band that's just another band, whether they wear makeup or not. Think about it, we dress so bizarrely, how could anyone think we're anything but court jesters? This is what he says now. He says, on the other hand, the basis of Christianity is worshipping a Jew. And let me get this right. There was a Jewish guy from Nazareth. That's our God. From then on, I can accept anything. Do you... He's 
mocking the message of Christianity. Or if you go onto YouTube, uh, there's a summary of a debate between Christopher Hitchens uh, and John Lennox. Uh, John Lennox is a, is a hero of mine. He's great as a debate. And Hitchens stands up, this is before he got sick, Hitchens stands up and he, he lists in quite a powerful argument, he says, well, if uh, there is a God, you know, and Adam and Eve and so on, it means for the last 100,000 years that Homo sapiens have been around, there has been violence and war and disease and people killed over food and women raped and all that, just massive suffering. And imagine that God decides, well, what are we going to do to fix this? Of course, I know what we'll do. Let's have someone tortured to death in an obscure town in the Middle East. That'll fix it. And you can't help but think, yeah. And to him, it's the ultimate foolishness. The ultimate foolishness. Chapter 1, verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greek look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And it is foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And God deliberately chooses the weak and the unimpressive and the ordinary people. None of us were followed here by a media contingent today, were we? We are the ordinary people, the little people. Verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. See what he's saying? If you were saved by you know, good works... Or, or obeying God's law, or through some massive pilgrimage, or through great intellect, or not finding out secrets, or giving money, or by, or by martyrdom, you'd have something to boast about. What's he saying? It's all. There's nothing to boast about, except Jesus. Except Jesus. And here's a question for you: As those of us who are um, are or look forward to be evangelists and pastors and people reaching others with Christ and part of you know, family teams that will go and do that. What is it that, what is it that we're armed with? Right. Ehud and his little toy sword and Shamgar with his... What is it we're armed with? The, the same message that he's just been talking about. Why? For the same reason. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God... For I resolved, in, in a Greek culture that worshipped all this stuff, right? for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I want to know, have you felt that weakness yet? Have you felt it? Like, man, I remember... Um, you know, I'm 30, uh, I was 31, yeah, I was 31 years old, I, I, I just finished at Moore College, I get sent to Mount Druitt, and I've been there six or seven months, and I got involved with a whole lot of families, and I'd drive around, and I'd know what went on in these houses, and just, and, uh, and I just feel, talking about weak, I felt like I was armed with a wet rag in the middle of a bushfire. You ever felt it? <laughs> 
you think, oh, well, no, I could never feel like that. Well, I'll tell you something. It's that feeling of powerlessness that, that makes ministers drift. And I'll tell you where the drift comes. The drift comes in terms of changing the whole emphasis of your ministry and what you do. It, it comes to, you know, looking for signs and wonders or, or it becomes it's all about spiritual warfare and we've got to somehow get that, that right or um, becomes we run social, only social welfare programs or we end up majoring on counselling people's problems or, or we end up running soft rock concerts and Jesus becomes your life coach. Because the message of the cross, if that's all you've got, it's so easy to feel powerless, isn't it? You might think, well, I know, I'll, I'll never drift away from that. I'll never think. You need to be reminded, and regularly. This is where the power of God is seen. And when you see the message of the cross, man, how powerful is it? Do you see? But it's, it's God's work, not ours. We carry that message, those little toy swords that are so powerful. We've got to hold the line on it. Right? Hold the line and not drift. How about we pray? Lord God, we thank you for um, this book of Judges that is in some ways so strange and so far away and yet in others so much like us and our need for salvation. We pray, please, that we'd be men and women who hold on to the message of the cross, your power for salvation. And we ask, please, that we might hold on to that so that those who boast may only boast in the Lord Jesus. And we pray for this great country that you've blessed so much. We ask, please, that you might raise up workers for the harvest, that we might see hundreds of thousands of men and women come to know you and find forgiveness through that great message. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.